personal data is just that. It's incredibly personal. When you have something where you may have an illness that you don't want to, other people to know, or you're on the treatment that you can't is very private, or you have a condition that you'd rather not people take a, a different view upon, and because you have that condition, that data becomes quite valuable. That's Paul Mee, who leads Oliver Wyman's Cyber Risk Management Value Proposition. Paul's here to offer leaders a critical cybersecurity and ransomware to-do list amidst COVID-19 and explain why we are all a firewall. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. For more on our strategic advice and expertise for healthcare stakeholders in response to the novel coronavirus pandemic, visit health.oliverwyman.com and follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. My name is Charlie Hoban. I'm a partner in Oliver Wyman's Health and Life Sciences Practice. And today I'm joined by Paul Mee, one of my colleagues who leads Oliver Wyman's cyber risk practice. Paul, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you for that, Charlie. So Paul Mee, despite my British accent, I'm actually based out of the United States. 15 years partner with Oliver Wyman, a computer scientist by education. And as Charlie said, I'll lead our uh, uh, cyber practice, which deals with some uh, pretty interesting topics around cybersecurity, cyber risk management, and particularly in recent times, how cyber risk has changed through the pandemic. Great. Thank you, Paul. And so today we're going to talk about cyber risk in healthcare and specifically in the context of the COVID pandemic. With the rise of COVID-19 across the world, we've also seen, sadly, an uptick in cyber attacks to health systems and other health organizations. And we really want to explore how, how that is happening, why that may be happening, and what some of the responses might be for health leaders around the world. So one particular flavor of cyber attack that that seems to be uh, prevalent in healthcare is this idea of ransomware. The idea that you're going to hold a system hostage by controlling their technology in order to extract some kind of a rent or a ransom. How do you see that as a threat for the industry to deal with? I I think it's a very real threat because we're already stressed uh, and if you're running critical systems right now, whether that's communications, whether it's you know, around ICU, whether it's hospital communications and organization, rostering, etc., you want those systems to work. And you probably want those systems to work with a higher degree of uh, robustness than you would in normal times. And the bad actors know this. Uh, and in these situations whereby they're exploiting you, they're going to hold your systems to ransom, as you say, you're much more likely to pay because you want things to work and you want them to work because it could be literally a matter of life and death. Um, So there's a motivation out there um, to put out ransomware because you are in such a stressed position whereby you will choose to pay. Now, there are clever places you can go to like nomoreransom.org, which actually give you guidelines. And in 85, 90% of cases, there'll be an antidote to that ransomware. But where there isn't, uh, then you're going to find organizations particularly vulnerable uh, because bad actors want to exploit your sense of urgency and your fears at this point in time. 
I'd love to get your sense of why now this is an important topic for us to be talking about. Well, we, we, we live in challenging times, Charlie. So uh, there are opportunities out there when it comes to cyber attacks. There are always cyber attacks. You know, some of my clients will get you know, over a million attempts a day by some kind of means or whatever, and, and all of those get thwarted successfully. Uh, but we're distracted right now. There's a lot going on, a lot that needs our attention, both in our professional and personal lives. And, and this represents a prime opportunity for rogue actors. You know, we've got very alternate ways of working right now. So all of us are working remotely. We're actually using technology in a different way, uh, in an unfamiliar way. It's outside of a corporate environment. You know, things like printing, things like data exchanges, things like emails. Uh, have done on a much more personal basis. And that's difficult to control, and the bad actors are aware of that. And the technology is being used in a different way as well. So uh, we just look at simple things like Zoom, you know, just the number of people who are on Zoom, uh, the number of people who are exchanging information, uh, the number of people who are trying to share with their families in different circumstances where you're using a common router or a common Wi-Fi network. So this situation, which is quite different, also represents a new set of vulnerabilities and a new set of opportunities for bad actors, which they'll try and exploit. Yep. No, I think that sounds exactly right. And in the context of healthcare, you know, as we have seen people working from home, we've seen a rise of telehealth and virtual visits. We have more and new ways of connecting people and and the health system. It feels like that's only getting more prevalent and creating more vulnerability to the system. That's right. I mean, there, are, there are more and more devices connected together as well that across the healthcare um, supply chain, as it were, this idea of seamless. So more information being exchanged in more places. So there are some fairly mean things that can come out of this. And, and healthcare data uh, is more valuable than I think people realize. It's quite different from what you might have for a bank or what you might have for intellectual property for a large organization. But nevertheless, it has intrinsic value that's very attractive um, to an outside party. I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on what would be the lessons that healthcare executives could take from other industries who maybe have been down this road for a little longer? Right. So I'll start with you're more interesting than you think. <laughs> oh, because um, we, we saw this a few years ago with insurance. Saying, well, why would anybody bother with me? You know, it's insurance. It's not like it's money. It's not like it's um, large scale transactions or even smaller transactions. You know, it's insurance. And you know, then we found there was a spike of uh, fraudulent insurance claims. So the information in the, the healthcare sector is, is, is broad and valuable. If I look at the value associated with a new drug, for example, its lifetime value can be $20 billion. If you can find out the ingredients and formula and processes associated with that drug, you can choose to counterfeit that, and other countries will actively counterfeit that. So it becomes a threat to value. But personal data is just that. It's incredibly personal. When you have something where you may have an illness that you don't want other people to know, or you're on a treatment that you count as very private, or you have a condition that you'd rather not people take a, a different view upon, and because you have that condition, that data becomes quite valuable. Uh, and we've seen that you know the, the healthcare records will sell for between five and 20 times the price of a credit card record on the dark web. So this is intrinsically valuable. But also there's other aspects of the healthcare system. If you think about the value of intellectual property, the value of information that could affect a stock price or you know, a, a deal, you know, the value of an annual report before it's even been published um, in the draft state. Uh, we look at the medical internet of things, more things communicating with more systems. That web uh, represents a massive potential attack surface 
that rogue actors will try and take advantage of. Talk a little bit about the structures and building resilience and protections. The banking industry and other industries have been down this road. The healthcare industry probably has some learning to do about how to do that well. That's a great question. And if, if I think about some of the key differences, and this goes all the way back to the military as well, is the, the concept or philosophy, and, and often in our cases, a policy of, of designing security in. So we, we all get excited about the next um, uh, innovative tool. We've got like, you know, lots of uh, Meditronic devices. We've got digital pacemakers now. Um, and all these things don't necessarily have the level of security that they should have designed in right from the start. And uh, if you want to find what's called the Internet Hall of Shame, there's a very good website called The Code Commudgeon. And uh, he lists um, many, many devices um, that are used in our personal lives and often inside our body that don't have the level of security that's there. So what you can learn from industries like banking, like from the airline industry, that designing safety and security into the device rather than just getting excited about its innovative features is an important aspect that you're dealing with the root causes of actual vulnerabilities associated with devices and communications. I think right now when we're very rapidly deploying new technologies, specifically around telehealth and remote monitoring, I think that now's the time to be thinking about exactly that. You know, How do we make sure as we are putting those new technologies to work, we're thinking about the security and safety from the outset instead of after the fact? Exactly, because otherwise you're constantly defending. And if you want true resilience, designing that kind of security in from the start will put you on a much stronger footing. When you've seen this work well, where has the energy for thinking about this come from? Is it from the IT organization or is it from somewhere else? I mean, it depends. I think the smarter organizations, it is the tone from the top. The organization cares about its customer um, information, it cares about um, customer data, it cares about its employee data and, and what's being done with that. So that, that tone from the top whereby if you think you can delegate it to IT to fix it, then that's fundamentally problematic. And an entire organization needs to care for the well-being of um, patients, care for the well-being of uh, employees. And that tone from the top can make a tremendous difference because if you have a culture of caring, a culture of cyber risk mindfulness, then you've almost got a human firewall in your business anyway, because you know, people can spot things sooner. Uh, they can take action in the right way sooner, uh, and they can actually be in a position whereby, you know, for a computer virus, for example, they can contain it much quicker than they would do if they were less aware, or they just thought, well, the security officer deals with all this stuff, not me. So that tone from the top and you know, be almost being like a, a demand or source of demand on IT tends to be stronger than thinking that uh, IT will do this unto themselves. Talk a little bit about mindfulness and, and how you think we need to be building that into our workforce more broadly, how people need to think a little bit about their day-to-day -day interactions. I think we're at your point about we're all a firewall. What does that mean day-to-day? -day? So if I think about what's important to an organization, it's really about having a sense of culture and, and, and cyber mindfulness. And that does come from the top. Just a simple test, like, can management actually understand where the cyber risk could come from? And if they understand that, then they can communicate and set up policies and arrangements so that their staff and their workers are fully aware about uh, those cyber risks and take steps accordingly. There's also the concept of cyber literacy. So do people understand what good cyber hygiene means when in terms of exchanging information, when using and sending emails, 
when dealing with large data sets, uh, when dealing with reports, etc. So that kind of cyber hygiene is an important factor. And then lastly is where the organization actually cares about this stuff. There are conversations about it. And if I look at the airline industry, for example, you know, safety is paramount. And it's in everyday conversations. It's the way things get done in an airline. I've, I've shared lunches with uh, airline pilots, with engineers, uh, with uh, the crew of aircraft. There's always in the conversation uh, some aspect of safety. It's the way of talking. And I think if you can do that in an organization when it comes to cyber and just make sure those conversations happen without fear of blame, then you'll have a much stronger basis in the cyber culture. And as I mentioned, you almost have a human firewall here that helps you deal with um, cyber events and helps to prevent them happening in the first place. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in healthcare because healthcare already has a, a safety culture and that idea of discussion without blame in the context of medicine, in the context of clinical safety. But I think what you're talking about is, is translating that into the same thought process in the context of cyber and digital safety. Exactly, yeah. yeah we, we, we live in a time when it's become particularly prescient. You know, if, if I look at some of the behavior through um, the, the uh, crisis, if I, if I wind the clock back to the beginning of January, soon after that, as we got into February, we saw growth in, in cyber attacks that were are quite malicious in nature and, and took advantage of, people, of people's fears. You know, there's a a virus out there that's been neutralized now that was called coronavirus safety measures.pdf. And as a, somebody who would care about their own welfare and that of their colleagues and family, you'd be tempted to open this particular PDF. And when you do so, you found there's a set of malware that would be embedded into your system if you didn't have adequate protection, uh, and then would look for anything that looked like value traffic to exploit that. Uh, and we've seen, if you uh, go to Recorded Future, they're a very good firm that looks at the change in threats and the changing of the cyber landscape and look at the dark web, etc. They've been tracking this and there's a massive uptick in people who are trying to exploit this situation, including the World Health Organization, who themselves were subject to cyber attacks um, just a couple of weeks ago. So you know, this is an interesting time whereby the bad actors will look to exploit people's fears, people's vulnerabilities, and this change of working uh, that's had to occur as a consequence of dealing with the coronavirus. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And it does feel like now's the time. That said, we're in the midst of a crisis. And, you know, every health organization we know is rapidly mobilizing, responding quickly to the changing circumstances, to the surges that are overwhelming different parts of different cities around the world. How would you counsel leaders right now in terms of the things to be thinking about? If I only can do a couple of things, I don't have bandwidth to take on a broad cyber strategy. What are the two or three things we could do right now that would make a difference? These are in no particular order, but these are kind of what I'd see as good or emerging practices that have come through the crisis. There's putting people in, in the mix who do worry about these things, you know, the chief security officer or the chief information security officer, just put them in the conversation because they will know about these things. They will have a different view than somebody doing business as usual. You know, they'll have a nose for this kind of stuff. You, know, you have ex-military personnel who know how bad people behave. Um, and if you're going to make a move to you know, deploy a new facility, as we've seen in New York State, build an entirely new hospital, somebody who has a slightly darker perspective or a security perspective will be able to look at that and say, 
where would I see the threats? Where do I see the risk? So just having that second opinion or that second pair of eyes and anything that's new and different or could be distracting is quite valuable. The, the other part is assume something bad will happen. You know, assume somebody will try and exfiltrate data, somebody will try and take advantage. And I'll talk a second about why somebody would uh, apply ransomware, but assume that somebody would apply ransomware. Just think about how you'd constitute you know, a group to deal with that, what your kind of cyber incident response executive would look like, even if it's just a list of the eight names and their phone numbers and what each one of them will do when something bad happens. So that little bit of preparation means that you're on the front foot, or at least you're better prepared to know who to call uh, when something bad happens, because this is a time when um, bad actors will look to exploit your distraction, your urgency, and your focus on this particular situation. And then lastly, there are areas where uh, I would counsel just to check where your communications are sufficiently secure. There are instances where people will want to tap into what you're doing. They'll want to listen in. They'll either want it because they want to get an insight into the conversation or they want to you know, get some um, juice on where you might be slightly more disorganized than you'd hoped or whether you're having conversations that are more sensitive than you hoped. So if some of these passwords for Zoom or for WebEx or other facilities are over two or three years old, you might want to consider changing those numbers because they could get into the public domain or the, the domain of bad actors. So thinking about have I got the right security around my communications is also an important aspect to make sure, once again, you have a degree of cyber hygiene. Fantastic. Well, th thank you, Paul. I, I think I think that really does sort of give, give both a bigger perspective on the challenges we're facing and a little bit more of an immediate to-do list that we can begin to, to organize around. Um, so again, thank you for your perspectives. Um, and hopefully this, uh, this has been a useful conversation for those who are facing these kinds of challenges on a day-to-day -day basis. Very good. Thank you for inviting me to this. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's show, we invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.